Welcome back to the Lighthouse Project Podcast, a Children of Scientology production and a completely collaborative effort to chat about all the issues affecting the youngest members of Scientology who didn't choose it for themselves. Our goal is to help create awareness around what Scientology feels like specifically to a child, what becomes of them, their sense of self, family bonds, mental health, as only someone who experienced being raised in it care, and some familiar topics in a different way and explore how we can heal and share our tools. In this podcast, we are going to share stories and information, some details of which may be upsetting or disturbing for listeners, specifically content involving sexual assault, rape, child sexual abuse, and psychological and physical abuse of children. We encourage anyone who has been affected by these types of experiences who wish to talk to someone about it to reach out to a trauma-informed organization in their area. Today, we'll continue our conversation about the Danny Masterson retrial and Jane Doe 3 testimony and share some similar experiences. In part one of this conversation, we covered a lot of topics, human emotion and reaction, not using the proper language around our experience. And we began to touch on the practice Scientology has blaming the victim and having them take responsibility for pulling in whatever harm happened to them. You must find something that is similar where you did something similar to someone else to pull that thing in now. If it's something you could not have done this lifetime, you look into your past lifetimes regardless of how many eons ago that happened. And Victoria goes on to say that she later, after leaving Scientology, was diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder. And I really think that just speaks for itself. So without further ado, we continue the conversation. This is part two. Victoria, what you were saying there about they wanted to know what you did, so you had to go back. And one of the things that Jane Doe 3 touches on, she said that Miranda Scoggins told her that she had done something to pull it in. Now, the background of that, where that comes from, is from the overt motivator sequence that Alwyn Hubbard created. And I pulled this explanation from the Scientology website, www.scientologycourses.org. And what I did, which I absolutely, <laughs> I had a little bit of fun with this, guys. I'm not, I'm going to be honest here. So what I did was I did, I took the first one, two or three search result. I was looking for a Scientology sourced definition. So I was only going to go on to their own websites to find what they say themselves, because we have our experience, but it's sometimes it's just yeah. fun to just point out like this, they're still saying this today. You know what I mean? So I found this overt motivator sequence. And so, by the way, the Scientology courses, these ones, they're intro courses. This is not anything like further up that you study. This is the basic. You get this information from very early on. And so Jane Doe 3 would have had a very good understanding of this throughout her Scientology experience. So they described it as, while a harmful act done by a person against another is called an overt, a harmful act that has been received by a person is called a motivator. It is called a motivator because it motivates, giving that person a reason or justification to commit overs. 
The person who has received the motivator may consider that he has a good enough reason to then commit an overt against the person who harmed him. But also, when he commits an overt act without having received a motivator, he tries to then find or dream up a motivator to explain or excuse his own harmful action. He will often believe or falsely say that something bad happened to him, even if it didn't. When dealing with overts and motivators, people often get false ideas about what has really happened. For example, a person can go around believing he was the victim of a car accident when, in fact, he caused the accident. It's crazy making. It's That's literally... exactly right. That's what they're doing. So it's they gaslighting. Really... Exactly. So they really don't believe that a person can be harmed or injured without that person who received that action having done something wrong themselves. And this is the backbone of these auditing sessions that if as soon as someone's saying, hey, someone did this to me, it's really upsetting and I feel hurt by it. I feel harmed by it. I feel injured by it. Okay, what have you done to pull that in? Okay, because Scientology believes that if you don't have a motivator, you're going to create one. So no matter what, whatever you have to complain about, at the back of that, there's an overt that you did. So they really don't acknowledge that someone can be harmed and that it can just be the other person's fault. There always has to be something behind that, which is just absolutely horrific. You can't be a victim because you must take responsibility for whatever happened to you. And it's not to say that turning the other cheek isn't powerful and forgiveness isn't powerful and taking responsibility is powerful. And I think that's probably why you do feel better when you accept your right. part in something, assuming you have a part in something, but being tricked into admitting that your part was nine trillion years ago, you also raped a child. And so that's why you were. And raped that's as not a child. even an exaggeration, in, in, Christy, because that's literally what my auditor, like what we quote unquote discovered in session, is after what happened to me. I had security checks done as a child and I had to go through my timeline in my life because, you know, I was raped. Okay, well, when did you rape somebody? <laughs> and so I had to go back. I think it was like three trillion years or so. And I was an alien officer and I had raped somebody. <laughs> I mean, I would have said anything to get out of this six hour interrogation. So it's not an exaggeration for anybody that's listening and it's not familiar with Scientology, literally, you're going back lifetimes, like trying to find this motivator. Awful. Yeah. Right. And you can see how they create these false memories because they validate it. So what they do is they say they want the earlier similar, which creates this chain of events that you have to go back and back because they won't let you finish the session unless your needle is floating. That terminology, the needle, when you're in an auditing session, you're on an e-meter and you're holding these two aluminum cans. And on the other side, it's basically a lie detector test. So on the other side, the auditor has their e-meter panel and they're reading it. And th there's a little needle that goes back and forth and supposedly, you know, will measure your electrical currencies in your body. So when your needle is floating, that means that you've come to a resolution or whatever, you've come to realization and that auditing action has come to a resolution. It's okay. You can end. Exactly. 
Where did you do that to someone else? What is the similar? Right. Where's your similar of your own? And then earlier similar of that thing. Yeah, a similar over of your own. Exactly. So that's, so see how specific that is? A similar over of your own. So if what you're complaining about is that such and such was touching you and made me feel uncomfortable and, you know, I felt violated by that. Okay, well, when did you violate someone that way, in that same way? So you're going back and they'll say, well, what's that? What's that? What's that? And they will, and you're like, I, I don't know, but I see a sock. And they're like, okay, the sock, you know, tell me about the sock. And you're like, okay, well, there was da da da. And so then whatever image is coming to you, that's what you're talking about. And like, I remember when this would happen to me in a session and I'd just be like, I don't know. I think this is my, I'm like, I think this is my imagination. And they're like, well, you have to say what you see. So just tell me what you see. Tell me what you see. So you're just like, okay, well, I see a tree and I see some branches. And I guess, you know, what do you feel? What do you smell? I was like, oh, I feel some leaves. Oh, I think I'm laying on the ground. I feel the moisture of the ground and the leaves. And okay, um, you know, so it really creates this fully textured false memory that they have um, implanted. Yeah. Yeah. How could that be confusing, especially for a child mm -hmm. or a victim that's experiencing trauma to now go back mm -hmm. and pile false memories on top of that? Yeah. So the outcome of that, that you go, oh, okay, well, I see how that happened to me because I did this a trillion years ago. Uh, oh, yeah, that's the, yeah, that's just one of the ways. I mean, there, there's so many. This is just one of the ways. And this is why we're really pulling these things out of Jane Doe 3's testimony because there's so many things here. There's even more that's not covered in here. And we're focusing on her experience and just trying to share what correlates with our own experience. Jane Doe 3 said that she didn't go to law enforcement because it's a high crime in Scientology. And it's really interesting because there's versions of high crimes and suppressive acts that are within the sort of cloister of the C organization, for example. But there's been some scrubbing of this book. The book that she's referencing is The Introduction to Scientology Ethics. And I think there's been actually a number of revisions with that, at least a couple. And but then there's the actual policies that stems from. And she mentions that she's shown green and red volumes. So I just want people to understand that the Introduction to Scientology Ethics book is more a publicly available book. But the green volumes, the ones that are green writing on white background, they're not so readily available. So she's referring to things that are in the Scientology Ethics book, but she's also referring to she gets shown these other volumes, things to read out of these other volumes. So I reviewed over what's in the contents of the Introduction to Scientology Ethics book, and I think that I've pulled out a couple of things that are not in there that are in the original text. And this I've pulled from Jerry Armstrong's website, and he was a person who took a lot of the documentation, a lot of the documents and policies uh, and writings of Elrond Hubbard and put them on the internet for everyone to have access to, which was pretty amazing. So the two that I've grabbed here is, one is reporting or threatening to report Scientology or Scientologists to civil authorities in an effort to suppress Scientology or Scientologists from practicing or receiving standard Scientology. 
And the other one is bringing civil suit against Scientology organization or Scientologists, including the non-payment of bills or failure to refund without first calling the matter to the attention of the International Justice Chief and receiving a reply. So what I would understand from that is that I need to go through this internal justice system in Scientology before I can consider going to the outside authorities. And in fact, reporting or threatening to report Scientology or Scientologists to civil authorities, and we understand the civil authorities to be law enforcement, the police, or other agencies, then that is a suppressive act. I also just wanted to point out in the suppressive acts, there is also a portion there. There's actually quite a bit. I would encourage people, if you want to dive into this a bit deeper, to you can just do a quick Google. We're not going to cover all the points here. But one of the things... Oh, okay. So this is interesting. Here's one. It's a suppressive act to deliver up a Scientologist without justifiable defense or lawful protest to the demands of civil or criminal law. And this goes to why Scientology has a presence in this case. Obviously, they want to protect themselves. But also, Danny Masterson is a Scientologist. It's a suppressive act for them to just deliver him up. So you understand here that Scientology is always going to be at the defense of the perpetrator, right? If they're the ones that have been, not only should the victim not report, not go to law enforcement, but that Scientology should actually intervene on the person that's on the on behalf of the person that's being accused. This is my understanding of it. The other point was that the question is, does it cover anything if someone does an unlawful sex act? There isn't anything there that's very specific. There is a portion there that says sexual or sexually perverted conduct. So this is a suppressive act. Sexual or sexually perverted conduct contrary to the well-being or good state of mind of a Scientologist in good standing or under the charge of Scientology, such as a student or preclare. And someone might say, doesn't that mean that they're against someone committing these sexual acts? But in fact, if you've grown up in Scientology, you understand that sexually perverted conduct is what homosexual activity is. That's how homosexual activity is described. So something like anal sex or something that would be considered not survival on the second dynamic, as we covered, that would be sexually perverted conduct. It wasn't in our minds that would include child sexual assault, right? Well, in fact, you have that Dianetics quote that we're all familiar with about a six-year-old girl who reacts poorly to right. a passionate kiss from a man. She's the one that's wrong, right? She's yeah. the one that has the problem. So, I mean, that just infers that it's her problem. Her reaction is inappropriate. They don't say per se, that pedophilia is fine, right. but the relabeling of everything is out2D. Oh, you had out2D with your child, or you had out2D, and that it's just an aberration, and that Scientology is the only one that help, right. can help you handle aberration. Going to prison will not help you. You won't be reformed. You'll just be punished in a way that's not helpful. So they they trick you either way, if you're the victim, if you're the parent, if you're the whatever. Scientology is the only solution. That is the end-all, be-all of everything. And, mm -hmm. all, of course, PR of Scientology trumps everything because it's the greatest good, because it's the only thing that can salvage the planet and save mankind. So you can't win for losing. There is no 
it's just circuitous. There's no way around any of that. Yeah. And that quote from Dianetics, Christy, to be specific, is a seven-year-old, and I'm not reading it, I'm just going from memory. A seven-year-old girl should not react to a kiss from a man, even a passionate one. Okay. And so that's in Dianetics. Now, I didn't read Dianetics, but at that time, and in fact, I've never read it cover to cover, but it's ingrained in the culture that we're not children, we're adults. And Alwyn Hubbard certainly held that view. And he communicated that throughout a lot of his writing. And especially in the sort of internal seer documents that I had access to, but it's there. It's throughout everything. It's there in his like child dianetics, his child Scientology and all those sort of things. So it really removes the rights of a child as a child, that they are a vulnerable person. Does not recognize them as a vulnerable person. Absolutely. So you're not a child. You're an ageless spirit in a young body or a small Mm -hmm. body or however you want to say it. And also, too, you're held to the same laws as men and women. There's all sorts of his policies. And don't bypass children and don't prevent them from being all that they want to be. He just has come up with all sorts of ways to divide and conquer the parent and child. It's all very intentional. Completely intentional. And you can see that if you step back and just start reading these policies that Mm -hmm. Miriam's talking about. I didn't read Dianetics either. Thank goodness that didn't ever rot my brain. But in later years, seeing these references, these internal documents written about children and investigations and why finding for why this cadet org was failing or why the parents were being pulled off their posts. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. The rationalization of abusing and intentional neglect of children for decades. It's just heartbreaking. I'm so glad that there aren't children in the Sea Org anymore, children born into the Sea Org, but there are still 12 and 13 and 14 year olds, which I yeah. went to the RPF for the first time at that age. So it's better, but it's certainly not good. Agreed. And also, I wanted to point out one of the suppressive acts is any felony such as murder, arson, etc., against person or property. Now, someone could look at that and say it's a felony. So they are saying that's not okay. But if you're a child who doesn't understand what felonies are, and the only ones that are referenced here is murder, arson, etc., there's nothing that points out to say, hey, if someone's been touching you, that's not okay. There's nothing that says you have a right to say that it's not okay. You have the right to feel and understand that something wrong has occurred and something has happened to you. So that's what I really want to point to. There isn't any of this foundation in Scientology that allows a victim to understand that they were a victim, it's specifically with regards to sexual assault. It's a very negative connotation. Victim, I don't know if people are, are familiar with the tone scale, but victim is way far down on the tone scale. There is no victim. Victim right. is you blaming someone else. So that's you shirking right. responsibility and it's frowned upon. It's low toned. It's weak. It's pussy. We're not victims here. We take responsibility. We are cause over life. We are not yet at effect. Like all these thought stopping 
bullshit things, mm-hmm. but and that and it's horrific to do to anyone. The idea of doing it to young adults or children just kills me. And before I forget, I was listening to this disgusting tape the other day called Fish and Fumble, and it's LRH pulling strings in some auditing session. And the example that he happens to run into with this guy is, oh, he had a dirty needle. So Fish and Fumble is about finding dirty needles and like pulling it down and finding Mm. what the issue was. And the thing that the guy ends up going into is raping children. And it's just so lackadaisical. Oh, you rape girls. Okay. Oh, rape girls. Love rape. Lots of girls. Rape. Murder girls. You touch girls. You ate girls. I mean, it was just desensitized to what they were saying. I think that is what Scientology does is it removes the value of these things. It goes, oh, he's just aberrated. Oh, he's a rapist. Oh, he's just aberrated. That's okay. We'll handle him. He just needs a blah, blah, blah. We'll just need to go CS him for a blah, blah, blah. It's all that they have the solution. Christy, you're also taught from a very young age that you are not your body. Your body is an object that you operate. And so I think that plays a big part in this raping and molestation and somebody taking advantage of your body and harming your body. So what? It's just an object. You know, it's you're so removed from that. And the difference is is separating the spiritual being from the body, right? So it's, hang on, but you're a powerful spiritual being. You know, what did you do? You're the one that's holding on to these ideas. You have power over your body. So it's just obviously very manipulative. I've got this technical dictionary, which I ordered on Amazon. And I was hoping to get a more recent version, but it was the only one that I could find. And in fact, it was advertised as I think it was like 1983 or 1984. I was wanting to get, because I believe that's the edition that I grew up on. However, it turned up and it was 1979. And by the way, there's a, a quite a pungent odor. <laughs> emanating from this technical dictionary that I have right in front of me. And um, goodness, I wanted to grab this definition of victim. Now, of course, as I said, this is an earlier edition of technical dictionary. But by 1979, Howard Hubbard died in 1986. So really, the bulk of his work was done by then. And the technical dictionary is basically like a compilation that's a pulling together of mentions where he had mentioned the term or provided an explanation and so in it there's a reference to where that came from so i'll just read the two that it has here but i actually seem to remember that the later versions had even more definitions of what a victim was i'll just read the two that are provided here definition one they destroyed or threatened with destruction receipt point that is a victim and also a victim is an unwilling and unknowing effect of life, matter, energy, space, and time. So it's basically like it receives, and I say it because it's almost like that's almost how he's talking about it. It's like it's a receipt point, right? It's not even a person that basically receives all this destruction or threat of destruction. So that's just a little glimpse there. I'm just going to pop that book away. Scientology, dehumanizing people since 1950. And if you can dehumanize people, you can control them. Bonus. There you go. So as I mentioned, there's a number of points here in even just the public version of this Introduction to Scientology Ethics book. I won't cover all of them here, but there are some interesting ones there. There's a number of them that I highlighted, but I think that gives you a pretty good idea of what's covered in there. 
So I pulled this copy of the suppressive acts from the introduction to Scientology ethics book. I actually pulled that from my Rinder's site. So if you jump on there, he has the PDF version. It is, I believe it's a PDF version. It's just scanned and directly from the book. So that's a handy one. But just as I mentioned, there are some things that are in the actual green and white that are not in this public version of this ethics and justice information. But I might just grab one more from it, which is knowingly giving testimony, which is false, a generality or not based on personal knowledge to imperil a Scientologist. So now if you remember that anything that happens to you didn't really happen to you, you've just made it up. That's all false. You've done something wrong. Mm -hmm. So you can start to see how these things correlate. You know what I mean? Now, here's one that I wanted to point out in Jane Doe 3's testimony. She says, first, so the prior part is, I didn't believe that I could report him to law enforcement. That's not what I was going to do. That's not what I had been told that I could do. Now here she says, I just wanted him to get help. And in Scientology, we're all spiritual beings and putting someone in prison is not going to make them better. It's not going to improve how they behave across the dynamics. Remember, we touched on the dynamics before, so this is really important. And if you move up from the first, second, third, fourth dynamic, so ultimately you're always conscious about what's going to be best for mankind, what's going to be best for the spirit. We don't want to focus on an individual. We want to go this big, broad, across the dynamics kind of view. And so if you're really going to help someone, you're, you're not going to want to put them in prison because you don't think that's effective in order to change a person or to help them. Really, you need to address the spirit, right? So that's where we need to use Scientology to really help him. So this is what she believed. She believed that he would stop doing these things if Scientology addressed it and handled him and helped him. And killed me when she made reference to Rain. And finally clarified with them what she had been told when she called and said, if your boyfriend rapes you or a person that you're in a relationship with has sex with yeah. you without your permission, is that rape? And they said, absolutely. And it validated what she felt in her heart. But she had been told for years by her church quite the opposite. And that was a really poignant moment to me to finally get that truth. I totally agree with that. And I also just want to say this is why these frontline groups are really important because even just not in Scientology, but children are told certain things or they're told to keep quiet or they told, they're told we have to protect the family or the institution or whatever it is, the religious organization, and that's more important. And even though, as you said, Christy, I thought that was really well put, we know it in our heart. Right, we know it inside, but we've also been taught to ignore that—that that inside voice, okay? And they've dumped all these other things on top of it. So it's so helpful if you can just—you know—how simple that process is. If you can just pick up a phone and we can talk to somebody and say, "Hey, I'm really not sure. I believe that this is the way that this is." And these are people that are really well informed in this area that have access to resources and information for you, and. That access to help is easy and readily available. And that's why we mentioned it at the start of the first episode. And we'll continue to mention that along the way. But there are these organizations that are out there. And for me, when I first sought counseling, I called a local organization that focused on sexual assault. 
So a similar type of organization. And it was from there that I was then able to go in and start receiving counseling. And I just cannot recommend that enough. Even if counseling is something that you're not comfortable with, if you want to just pick up the phone and just even have a chat or you want some resources that you can do on your own. There's also text in the United States, at least, and you can be directed immediately to a crisis counselor that will text you. And unlike Scientology, they're not recording it and tracing you Mm -hmm. to document what you're saying. They're actually anonymous and you share what you want. And it's Mm -hmm. just a support person there to talk you through what your options are. Right. And they're not going to ask you what you did wrong to cause it. (laughs) So, you know, and that was such a relief for me when I first started counseling. I was very apprehensive, like, oh, my goodness, I was super apprehensive. And it took a while to understand that in my body. Like, you can say what you want to say. You can complain. You can talk about the fact that this happened to you. And, like, I was envisioning Sear Wimbers just, like, full uniform, just coming out of the freaking walls. It was so visceral, like, this experience of just sweating. Anyways, so it was such a relief. I was terrified of receiving counseling for the same reason. I had this therapist and it took me a good maybe a year and a half to finally trust her and to actually open up. And I mean, like on a weekly basis, seeing her twice a week. And she was very adamant, like saying, you are a victim of sexual assault. You're a victim. And it was so uncomfortable in my body. And I didn't, that term victim means something different now than it did then. And I was so uncomfortable with it. And I thought it was such a dirty word. And now I'm like, okay, now Mm -hmm. I'm finally accepting. It's not a bad thing. I mean, it's a bad thing. You know what I mean? Victim Mm -hmm. is, it can be more powerful. I don't know. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because the version of the understanding that you had in Scientology was the George Orwell 1984 way it's changing definitions of things you were forced to understand victim in a completely different way and you see the thing the word victim is really useful but if scientology can remove this well hang on so then there's no victims of scientology hey well how convenient is that and this all goes to the writings of alwyn hubbard and ultimately obviously what he wanted was this high control but what it does, in fact, is it completely destroys right. the language that we need to understand and talk about yeah. these things. Yeah. I loved what you said last time. They put words into your mouth and they take words out of your mouth in your brain. They create this incredible stigma around these words that we should be able to use to describe our feelings. But of course, your feelings are wrong and the yeah. words are wrong and you didn't really experience that. And that's confusing for a long time. So much confusion. And I wanted to move from there to talk about the role of the chaplain. And okay, let me just say that I had some vague understanding of what a chaplain was when I was growing up. And when I was in the CR, there was a chaplain office, but it really was not part of the day-to-day operations. So I was in ASHO. I was in ASHO Day and ASHO Foundation in the CR. And I was also later in the Gold Ref office, which was in the management organization but in a service org which is like celebrity center aola which these victims were a part of and also in asho they have a chaplain in each of these organizations so 
I understood the role of the chaplain to be someone that handles family matters, disputes, divorce, and stuff like that. That was my understanding of it. But I actually went on to, again, as I said, I did my little Google search and I took the first one, two or three search results. And I took this from whatisscientology.org and it says, the chaplain hears all matters or when requested and allowed by the chaplain, a body of three people is selected mutually agreeable to both parties. Scientologists use this means of civil justice because it is faster and fairer than what they would receive from any court system. If two Scientologists cannot resolve, say, a personal financial matter, they can bring this before the chaplain's court and get it handled rapidly and fairly. The alternative would so, be to bring costly and time-consuming suits. Sorry, I'm having my own revelations here. <laughs> so the chaplain cycle, so you need to have, you said three Scientologists? Yes, so this right. is if requested. So most of this work is one-on-one -on -one with the chaplain. It's just the chaplain and you in her office. It generally has been a woman from my experience, but obviously it can be a man. Um, I think ours was female at Asho. Maybe that's why I'm thinking that, but... Uh, it could be a man or a woman, doesn't matter. But um, yeah, it's usually one-on-one -on -one just in their office. You go in there, it's closed door, and it's very private, but it can be requested. So for example, if in the case the person's like, well, I don't think that we're getting a fair result here, and I want to have this reviewed, and maybe even they're saying they want to take it to court so that they can have yeah, this sort of battled out in court and get a fair, what they feel might be a fair decision. If they believe that they're not getting a fair result, what they can do is request a external party, and then that's when they will put together three people selected, mutually agreeable to both parties. So these would be fellow Scientologists. Interesting. When I came forward with my sexual assault and rape, I came forward because I wanted to tell police I was ready to go to the police and to CPS. And I was told that it would be better to have a chaplain cycle. And that's when I had that chaplain cycle with the auditor and my cousin and my brother and myself. We were all in the same room. And I don't know how long it went on, but for a while. That's just interesting. I had never, I just never heard that reference. And now I'm like, oh, okay. 10 years later, and now I'm still having these realizations of, oh, okay, that's what that was. Because I was just seconds away from calling the police, but instead I was brought into this cycle. Yeah, Christy. So a child who's being raped by an adult, the solution is don't go to the police, come right. in here and we'll handle this internally. Of course they would. It's, it's, it's a PR flap. And I'm sorry, that's incredibly disgusting, Victoria. I can't even imagine. Miriam, is chaplain public-facing only, or are there chaplain cycles within the Sea Org and first staff members? It's interesting that you ask that. Mostly it is public-facing. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to say, Victoria, as well, when you were saying, like, oh, I'm still just putting these pieces together. I have as well been doing that. Right. And this chaplain does come up through the Jane Doe's testimonies. And we hear it here in Jane Doe 3s to begin with. And I remember last trial going, oh, something clicked for me too. 
And so to answer your question, Christy, is this used in the Sea Org? Now, I want to back up here just to say again that my understanding of it while I was in the Sea Org was that it was this office that handled personal disputes and things like divorce. And I did have an understanding that they would do, you know, basically it would be like handling a divorce rather than it having it be in the court system. I did understand that. But of course, I didn't understand that they were handling, you know, because we didn't hear about sexual assault rape. It wasn't talked about. So I didn't know that that's what they were also doing. So what I'm trying to say is that type of stuff is really kept under the rug. And so, of course, like we're still now piecing these things together. So last trial, when I was here, chaplain, 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 I was like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> right. As you do, because I remember when I was in Asho, I blew, I escaped. And my yeah. purpose in escaping was that, um, obviously, there was nowhere I could live out in the outside world. I would just be homeless. But my purpose was for them to really understand that I was serious and I wanted to leave. So I was going to come back. Um, and that's a whole long story. But basically, yeah, we won't go there. But basically, I end up in like a foster home overnight. So I get taken back to the base and I'm on the decks. And then my mom comes down to see me. Because you understand, I ended up at LAPD. This is a huge, wow. I was taken to the LAPD station by police. And the other thing was when they were asking yeah. me questions, like, well, where's your mom? So first I tried to lie because my instinct was I want to protect the church. But then basically the police officer like just blew up on me and she was like, you're fucking lying. And I was just was like, I was like 15. I may have just turned 16. Um, so, and I just burst into tears. She was like, you're going to fucking tell me the truth. I was like very intimidated. So I was like, oh, okay, I'm, okay. I'm like crying. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm the time machine. So she's like, okay, so where does your mother live? And I was like, I don't know because it's a confidential location and I don't have the address. And she just couldn't, like, it was so unbelievable. Mm. And then she was like, where's your dad? And then my dad at that time, he'd been transferred to the gold ref office in the UK. So I'm like, he lives in England. And so she's like, you have no parent? I think it was 15, I want to say. Anyhow, but she just couldn't understand this. Obviously, it was a very strange situation. And I was handcuffed, actually. So from there, I was taken to the police station. And at the police station, all the police officers made fun of me. And they, like, taunted me. And they laughed at me. And it was a super horrible experience. And they handcuffed me there. Standing in the station, they handcuffed me. And they put me into a room. And it was just a, just a bench. I just had a bench. It was a small room with, like, windows all around. And I just had to sit there with handcuffed for two hours while they came in and repeatedly asked me the same questions over and over. And I still had the same answers. I don't know where my mother lives. It's a confidential location. And it was just, they couldn't obviously crack me because I was telling the truth. And so eventually they were like, I don't, we don't know what to do with her. There's more to the story. They tried to contact Asho. And so it's a broader story. And I, you know, would love to tell that story in a lot more detail some other time, but just to give you an idea. So anyways, back to the chaplain. So I come back, I'm on the decks, which was like, I was like, yes, I'm on the decks. Because that meant if you're on the decks, you have an opportunity. You are now routing out to leave. You're doing the proper process to leave the Sea Org. And I was like, all of my dreams have come true. I am on my way out. So for me, that was so right. Even though they did not let me leave, just in that's a whole other story. They just kept me there and kept me there and kept me there. Because guess what? I was someone who had been sexually abused as a child. 
they're not going to want to let me just let me loose in the U.S., let alone in L.A. Oh, my goodness. So what happened is with this huge flap of me being involved in the LAPD, they then assigned me a guardian, this legal guardian. So what happened is my mom had arrived down to see me from gold and she told me to meet her outside the chaplain's office. So I come across from the complex building across the skyway. And that's where when you come out of the skyway and you enter the Asho building, that's where the chaplain's office is. And it's right next to reception. So I show up there and she's standing there with this older woman who I'd never seen before. She was in a CLO uniform. Didn't know her from a bar of soap. Looks like a Kathy kind of person, but I don't even remember her name. I was just, I was not paying attention to, I was just like so dismissive of her. But basically my mom straight away is, oh, hi, Mary. She always called me. This is your new legal guardian. And I was like, I don't know this person. Never seen them. I was like, okay, whatever. I was just like happy to see her, my mom. And um, we were standing outside the chaplain's office. Anyways, so she says, this is your legal guardian and her name is such and such. And I was like, whatever. And then she said, she is a terminal that you can go to. And if you ever want to talk yeah. to her about what happened with your dad. And I was just like, whoa. Because get to this guy. I, and I'm thinking now, yes, I'm thinking I am 16. Because so by this stage in my life, my mother had never talked to me about what had happened to me. She had never asked me questions. Remember earlier on in this episode, I talk about the fact that this PAB6 bulletin, and you guys can Google this, and I think on another time I'll go into that in more detail because it's pretty gross what it says in this bulletin. But it pretty much describes this like victim receipt point that we touched on. So you understand, I got that PAB6 document when I was about 12, 13 years old. And even then when I received that, I didn't know that I received that because she knew. So she never tells me anything as in directly to me. She never tells me that she knows. She never asks me any direct questions about it. She never asked me any questions about it, in fact. So this is the first time I'm going, oh, she knows. And I'm like, well, how can she just say this in front of this stranger? And so it's not until later that I realized, well, I knew straight away then that they'd obviously had a conversation about it between mm -hmm. them. But it wasn't until just recently <clears throat> that I was like, oh, they'd just come out of the chaplain's office. This is where that arrangement was made. This is where that legal matter was handled in order to keep any of this from being in the public system. So that's to answer your question, Christy, that yes, these matters did get handled via the chaplain's office in the C organization, but things were really kept on the down low. Maybe it's, we need this to be a more sensitive handling. And so we're going to use a chaplain instead of an ethics officer. Yeah. You know what I mean? More delicate things. That's pretty delicate. I think as well. So the first protocol is the ethics, right? They're trying to handle you in ethics, right? And if you can believe that it's your fault, then, you know, it's not going to progress any further, is it? But let's say it's someone who's adamant. And also in this case, Jane Doe 3, there's a relationship. She's leaving the relationship too. That happens later. And she goes to the chaplain twice. So it's an unresolved issue. They haven't been able to resolve it in ethics. And she's still saying something's wrong. Something's not right. I think I've been harmed by this. And they're just still trying to convince her that she hasn't. And I think you're right there with like, 
Yeah, it's not been, it's threatening, it's threatening to spill out into the public arena. And that's, I think, where the chaplain is involved. As you said, it's a more sensitive matter. And also, if you feel like it can be heard, and that maybe even if you have other parties involved and you can maybe have this fair resolution, you don't really feel the need to take it further. So again, it's it's almost like this way that you can feel like, oh, I feel like this is resolved and the case is closed without ever ending up into the court system or any kind of um, yeah, public means of trying to handle yeah, things. Yeah, so Victoria, for you, when you said, oh, I'm just piecing it together, I very much had that same experience myself. And if there's anyone else out there that, you know, has an experience like that, um, you might be having that same exact feeling as well. We will see this chaplain office be brought up time and time again within this trial. So it's going to become very evident that this is what their role is. But it's interesting that we've also had that experience where they've been involved too. Um, So specifically what she says, she says that she meets with the chaplain to discuss my issues what he did, what it was like. I told him, I gave the details of the things. So she says what he did to her, right? Then he got her to read something and then told her that it was her hat as his 2D or his girlfriend. And he basically said that if I stopped saying no, he wouldn't be doing those things. And my job or my hat as his girlfriend was to give him sex whenever he wanted. So it's like, well, you're not doing your job. If you'd just done your job, then this going to be an issue, okay? It's not within her right to say no. Right. The second time she sees the chaplain was when she says, when I told him that I was ending the relationship and she and Danny had to meet with Christopher Scoggins and work out the terms of our breakup. So that's the Celebrity Center chaplain, and his name is Christopher Scoggins. So as I said, and it's normally to do with the chaplain's office, is normally to do with divorce, like so that they don't end up in divorce court and start airing all these like grievances because could you imagine when you think about it you don't hear these divorces Scientology divorces right like these public detailed um you know that they get a divorce I'm not talking about celebrities but I'm just talking about normal Scientologists yeah that all of this gets handled internally and by the way with supported ending of that relationship it included an NDA I don't know if that's normal but that seems pretty creepy to me yeah, so I think that in this case, it wasn't a divorce, but I think they were sufficiently concerned that this could end in things being spilled out into um, the court. I remember having to sign uh, NDAs and affidavits when I was 13. I don't know how legal that is. My first year in college, I was raped and wow. I went to my same auditor and I had to sign an affidavit because I was suicidal because of what happened. And I had to sign an affidavit saying that if I were to kill myself, it wouldn't be Scientology's fault, basically, or it wouldn't be her fault. It would be of my own volition, not related to Scientology. So that sounds pretty on par. And Scientology loves these affidavits and these waivers and these agreements. They just love them. Um, They feel it checks them. Look, I'd say, you know, it probably has done a lot to protect them so far, even just as far as the person believing that they don't have a right to speak about those things. And I think now we're understanding more that, oh, well, that wasn't valid or I do have a right or I'm just going to do it anyways and I'm going to talk about what happened. I know that in my 
experience when I was leaving the RPF. This is another time I was trying to route out of the Sea Org. It was a very long process and it took a number of attempts along the way. But at this particular time, um, I was in fact now leaving. And see, because now I was in a different country by this time, they were less concerned. So now I could leave. And also my plan was to go to Australia. So anyways, before I could leave, I had to sign an affidavit saying that I forgive my father for what he's done. And I'll never pursue the Church of Scientology in a court of law because of it. So they do. They always try to um, back themselves and protect themselves. And it really doesn't matter what the victim's experience is. They don't care about that. They only care about their uh, own protection. And in doing so, they protect the predator. Zero interest in the victim, but their reputation, their income, their PR. So it's constant threat assessment and damage control. Threat assessment, damage control. And on that note of like how they really try and handle this internally, here's one of the things that they say, and this is taken from whatisscientology.org. Punishment is not a factor in Scientology justice, since it has long been proven in society that punishment, more often than not, simply hardens the punished person into patterns of destructive In other words, so it's going to make them worse, right? Punishment for the perpetrator is not appropriate. Cleaning houses. Punishment for the victim <laughs> is absolutely or appropriate. toilets, yeah. There you go. So yeah. just say, just make yeah, get those victims cleaning, and that's gonna that's gonna really make things better. All right. So they say, instead, those guilty. Now they say ecclesiastical offenses because they're wanting to say that we're not talking about actual crimes. We're talking, about, and I don't think, obviously, that's not the case. But in this is a very public. This is what is Scientology.org. Anyone can access this. So this is what they're saying publicly. But so they specifically say. Instead, those guilty of ecclesiastical offenses are instructed to make amends for any damage done by their actions, perform what amounts to community service on behalf of those wronged, and other such actions. In this wise, Scientology justice helps an individual apply ethics to himself and his activities and move up the conditions. So when they have tried to address the behavior of the person who has committed these offenses, they... Oh, you can just do some conditions. Um, that's going to make things better. So you're going to uh, do this handling and then everything's all good. And then we can just forget about it. Or in Danny Masterson's case, he can do nothing. Or maybe he can uh, flow power to the org or he can sure. disseminate to another celebrity. But in regard to this situation with Jane Doe 3, he's flourishing and prospering. He's got ethics protection. Problem solved. Yawn. Right. Nothing. Absolutely. Definitely. Oh, yes. And that's exactly what I was going to mention next. Thanks, Christy. Yes. So this came up in the cross-examination by Sean Holly. And Jane Doe 3 says, when I was doing conditions, I had to make amends to him. I remember getting his car washed and I had to do nice things for him. And this is where she talks about she had an ethics program. She refers to it as an ethics check sheet. But this would have been an ethics program, basically a series of steps that she had to do. And this is where she also mentions these red volumes and green volumes. So it was this book, the Introduction to Scientology Ethics book, and also these other resources of materials. And this is where she talks about she had to do overts and withholds. So clearly she's having to do a lot of these types of handlings. And then she then also asks Danny 
and this actually I think was covered earlier in the direct with her. <laughs> she asked him if he had to do any handlings and he was just like, no. Nah. And she was just like, like she'd gone through at least a couple of months of these things that she had to do. And one of the things she had to do was called this OW write-up, which is when you have to write up your overts and withholds. So I'll just define what those things are. So an overt, and this again, I've taken it from the whatisscientology.org. So an overt is a harmful act or a transgression against the moral code of a group. When a person does something that is contrary to the moral code he has agreed to, or when he omits to do something that he should have done per that moral code, he has committed an overt. An overt violates what was agreed upon. An overt can be intentional or unintentional. And then a withhold is an over a person has committed, but is not talking about an unspoken, unannounced transgression against a moral code by which a person was bound. Any withhold comes after an overt. Howard Hubbard said that if you're critical of a person, you must have overts. So we were taught about this growing up, right? Because these are at the basic level of Scientology. This is the introductory level of Scientology that you're learning and understanding these things. And so there's a word in Scientology and this term natter, which means being critical. And so we used to say this, the adults taught us this, natter, natter, bitch and moan, who's got overts of their own? And we would just sing song that. And it was a really great comeback as well. If someone's like, you're being a bitch. And then you'd be like, Natter, natter, bitch and moan. Who's got overts of their own? And like sometimes maybe a few of you are just shouting this back. And so, you know, whatever. As kids, you're always going to try and find something. You're going to try and find the fun in things sometimes. But what we really understood was that if you were critical or complaining, then you had overts and you were often through our childhood made to do OW write-ups. So this is one of the things that she had to do. And the OW write-up, just very simply, is basically you write down the over or the withhold, and then you detail it. The second step is that you detail it down. You break that down into time, place, form, event. So you're being very factual about the actions that you did, where you did it, and the details of the event. Jane Doe 3 and also Victoria here are perfect examples of you're being critical of this person because you're saying he harmed you. And so now you need to write your crimes up and then do something to take responsibility for you mm -hmm. getting yourself in this situation and your crimes and then give him a hug. And I remember having to write up how I might have 2D float or flirted with him or seduced him or whatever it was. Right. But it basically happens when <clears throat> someone is attracted to you. You exactly. must be yeah. sending out these laser tractor yeah. beams to mm -hmm. them that are causing them to be attracted. So mm -hmm. it's a flow that you're putting out. Even if you're 10, it doesn't matter how old you are. You could probably be four and it's mm -hmm. your 2D flowing him and he could not resist the flow that you put out. Like I remember around a certain age, if your shirt was a bit snug, yeah. that's where I felt like it had started for me. I probably started developing around 11, between 10, 11 and 12. But by 12, I had small breasts as a 12 year old might have. And from then on, for the rest of my yeah. Scientology experience, if I flirted, even if I wasn't like flirting, if I laughed at someone's joke too loudly or if I was too friendly or... That or kind of thing where I was told I was too interesting. interesting.
Exactly. Stop being yeah. interesting. Yeah. It, it, my experience with the two yeah. flowing, it was not people of the same age range. It was always yeah. older men and young women. My whole experience. Yeah. I don't know. Same. Yeah. My Same. experience was the girls yeah. well in a lot of ways. And it's gross. You're part of this big group. So you have a lot of adults involved. Yeah. It's just, I'm just trying to like give a broader picture of like, yeah, you have people that are like commenting on your physical appearances who are adults who are suggesting that you're being sexual and you're a kid and it just it's like it's just so wild like and then they have all this terminology to reframe it and to justify it and to twist your mind around and again you're a child you're having to navigate through all this stuff and it's really very challenging Welcome to no parental involvement, no protection, no one advocating for children. Yeah. So I took this reference from standleague.org. If you complain long and loud to a Scientologist about your spouse, your boss, your church, or your kids, the Scientologist may ask you an interesting question. Have you done something they almost found out about? So that question is the leading question for what are your overts and withholds? So I want people to understand how ingrained this is. If that even they're saying that even in a conversation, if you're having a conversation with a psychologist and you're complaining about something, you're complaining about someone or a group, they're going to ask you, have you done something they almost found out about? So at the basis of everything is this idea that you've done something wrong. Okay. And you've withheld something. You have something that you're trying to cover up. It goes on to say, a Scientologist might ask you to write down your overts and withholds. And when those misdeeds have been completely aired out, the relief is considerable. There are no punishments. Although once the overts and withholds are disclosed, basic goodness reasserts itself and the person is eager to take responsibility and make up for the damage done and set a more positive course of action for the future. And there's three or four things in there that is directly aligned with the testimony of Jane Doe 3, directly aligned with the things that you said, Victoria, that you experienced, and the things that we also talked about, Christy and I. And I just thought in that one paragraph on a very public site, they've mentioned all these things that you're not going to be believed if you're complaining about something. It's because you've done something wrong. Have them, they're going to ask you about that. And then you're going to relieve yourself by, you know, getting your overts and withholds out into the open, airing them out. And you're just going to feel better about yourself because now you're going to be eager to take responsibility for your own actions. And you're going to make that for the damage done. And obviously, this is exactly what goes on in Scientology. Let's make no mistake about that. We talked about in the first episode that we want to along the way include I build up this toolkit and one of the things that I think is really great that's really helped me in a lot of different ways is I learned in a counseling session that was offered to me it was just given to me on a sheet of paper and that's called the shark cage so it's the shark cage metaphor it's a way of I guess understanding the framework or the lack of framework around incidents of sexual abuse 
and it's broken down. So there's the metaphor, which is more the visual idea of it, of the principles. And then it's broken down into steps, which is the framework. So we're going to include that in the description so that you guys have access to that. And then later on, we're going to really drill down into the details of that. But essentially, it talks about your boundaries and your rights and understanding what your rights are and how that's important for your boundaries. But as I said, we will break that down into some further detail at a later date. And I believe, Christy, you also had something that you wanted to add to the toolkit this week? I do. This is from Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina, and it's a two-page document called Red Flags to Look for in an Abusive Personality. And I think it relates so well to Danny Masterson particularly, but also to Scientology, because in my opinion, just looking at Jane Doe's experience, she was in two incredibly abusive relationships that began at the same time and became enmeshed with each other. And I just can't even imagine how debilitating that had to be, both of those forces coming at her in cahoots with each other, basically, because he drew her in and then they grabbed her as well. But both relationships, all the hallmarks of abuse, psychological abuse, power, control, emotional gaslighting, just everything you can think of. And in this two-page document gives some pointers in what the red flags are in relationships like that. And so for me, this was really useful and it's pretty self-explanatory. But I was in a 10-year, very, very abusive, violent relationship that has some similarities to what Jane Doe 3 experienced. And Lordy, I wish I had seen this because it's just, it's got the guy's name all over it. I think it could be useful to folks. So we'll add that too. Thank you, Christine. I think that is what's really helpful. We just can offer these bits and pieces and just grab them as you feel might be useful. And yeah, as you said, I think that's such a good point. If we had been more informed, we really could have had some more tools to help us navigate through what turned out to be a very traumatic event in our lives. And we're also talking about our experience within Scientology, our experience after we left Scientology, and we really just didn't have the foundation to navigate through or understand some certain things. Absolutely. We escaped an abusive relationship. And yet there was familiarity in that abusive relationship. And so we were groomed and have these grooves in us that, you know, they say narcissists see folks like us coming. A lot of us ended up in, you know, follow-up abusive relationships. So it's, it is really good to have some tools and some references and an understanding of how and why. Thank you, Christine. So I'll just wrap it up here. And, um, you know, we hope that that's going to be helpful to people. I just wanted to provide everyone just once again and I think we will continue to have this in the description of the episodes but that website for RAIN is www.rainn.org and the phone number is 800-656-HOPE that's 800-656-4673 thank you all for sharing your stories and for being vulnerable and honest sharing your truth and experiences We'll see some more next week. Anything else that happens within the trial? This has been a very lengthy um, episode with lots of great information, but a lot of details that could be really hard to digest, especially if you are a survivor of abuse as well. So please 
remember to check in with yourselves. We're just so happy and appreciative of anyone that is listening because this is really meant to be a part of community. And we're here all together, so we're very appreciative as you're a part of our village. So thank you so much. 